Democrat Mike Johnston is running to be Colorado's next governor. He introduced himself recently to voters gathered at a home in Denver. I grew up on the western slope of Colorado. I'm the only candidate who's not from the, from the Denver Boulder Front Range area. But my, my mom was a music teacher and my dad was a bartender. And they moved to Eagle County in the 60s and my dad was running a bar there. And my mom bumped into the guy with the handlebar mustache and the purple chopper and the fishnet shirt and said, <laughs> that is the father of my children. <laughs> this is Who's Gonna Govern? Today, candidate Mike Johnston. He served in the Colorado Senate from 2009 to 2017. Prior to entering politics, he says his life was moving on a very familiar path. I eventually followed my mom into the real family business in our family, which is public school teaching. I'm proud that I'm a fourth-generation public school teacher. Uh, I started my career teaching high school English, which was the one rule uh, in our house because my grandmother was an English teacher and my grandfather was a school principal. Uh, and then my grandfather ran away with the math teacher. And so my grandmother always used to say, baby, you can be anything you want to be, just not a math teacher. <laughs> Johnston went on to make education reform a big part of his legislative career. There were highs and lows for him. He was the architect of Colorado's teacher evaluation system. He also fought for a statewide tax increase for schools in 2013, which voters defeated resoundingly. I'm Ryan Warner, and from CPR News, you're listening to Who's Gonna Govern, our podcast profiling the major party candidates for governor. The primaries on June 26th are historic because for the first time, any Colorado voter can take part. You don't have to belong to a party to pick a candidate. Let's listen to my conversation with Democrat Mike Johnston, recorded April 24th. Mike Johnston, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. What's the single biggest problem facing Colorado, and how do you propose to solve it? I think the single biggest problem facing the state is how are we going to make the necessary investments in our people in this state, which is around K-12 education and higher education, and in our infrastructure, which is around roads and bridges. If you want to be able to grow this state in a way that protects what we love most about it, those are the two most important things, is people and infrastructure. And I think to do that, you're going to have to have a governor who's going to lead in going to the ballot and repealing the worst parts of Tabor so we can actually restore funding to a system that right now we have one of the fastest growing economies in the country and one of the worst funded K-12 and higher ed systems and roads and bridges infrastructure in the country. Okay, so the theme there is investment, and that obviously points points to the need for the state, in your mind, to have more money. So you talk about repealing the worst parts of Tabor. Tabor is the Taxpayer Bill of Rights in the Colorado Constitution, and it says state and local governments cannot raise taxes or spend beyond a revenue cap without voter approval. Uh, at that house party we visited, you demonstrated how you would change Tabor uh, using a wine glass or, or a beer mug. Help us understand how that illustrates what you call the worst parts of Tabor. It's like the worst and best of Colorado at the same time, Tabor and the beer mug. Uh, but yeah, I find it's a simple example, which is this, the most damaging part of Tabor, I think, is the fact that it puts an absolute cap on the state budget, no matter what the state economy does. So the example I use, is if you look at a at a beer mug and say, if this full beer would have been the entire set of state needs, you know, for K-12 education, for roads and bridges, for higher education, what Tabor does essentially is come and cuts a hole halfway up that glass, which means it doesn't matter how long you put that under the tap, that glass is never going to get full. You'll never fill the set of state needs because the beer will always pour out when you get to that hole in the glass. And so my proposal has been, you don't have to raise taxes, you simply 
tape up the hole in the glass, which is what people that follow this would call debrucing uh, the state or allowing the state to keep the revenue that's coming in under the current economic recovery. This would require a vote of the people statewide. It would. You'd have to go to the voters. I propose you do it in 2020, which will be a historically high turnout election, I think, for this state. Presidential election. Presidential election. All right. There are those who would argue that more money in the hands of citizens, not governments, is how you create economic development. What would you say? I'd say the CU School of Business did a projection of what Colorado's future will look like economically, and their projections that the economy will start contracting as early as 2019, not because we don't have great businesses here, but because we're going to be missing two things. One is the people with the skills they need for the jobs that are emerging, and the second is infrastructure that you can move goods and services around the state on. And so I think if you don't fundamentally have infrastructure and talent, that's going to be the biggest gating factor in economic growth here. But if Tabor were to exact a negative effect on the state, uh, wouldn't we have seen more draconian effects by now? That is, this is a state with low unemployment, I think uh, advocates of Tabor would say, uh, whose economy is doing well and where business is thriving. So I think there are ways that we've kicked the can down the road as far as we can right now. What we also see is we have 20 billion, with a B, billion dollars of backlog needs for roads and bridges that are crumbling over the next 20 years. We have, you know, 300% increases in tuition at higher ed institutions over the last 10 to 20 years. So college is becoming less and less affordable. We have, you know, billion dollar holes in K-12 funding each year. So yes, as we see now, our teachers and our higher ed institutions are trying to do more and more with less and less, as are our roads and bridges. But you're reaching the breaking point on those things. And I think now's the moment where we've outrun the capacity to still grow under Tabor. Okay. We will unpack transportation, education, all in this conversation. And why don't we start with education? Because you would funnel more money to schools. Education, a marquee issue for you. And yet one of your opponents in the Democratic primary, Carrie Kennedy, was endorsed by the state's largest teachers union, which said of her, she aligns with all of the issues and values that our members share. I think this illustrates what appears to be a split in the Democratic Party, one that was very evident at the state assembly earlier this month. An education reform group that you're a part of was told to take Democrat out of its name. What does it say that there's such a disconnect between you and many of those in the family business, as you put it, and that is teaching? Well, I'm very proud of the fact that we have a deep well of support from teachers across the state, including the teachers I worked side by side with as a principal here and the union presidents I worked with who were big supporters of mine. And yet not the statewide union. And I think what you focus on, what we focus on now is the most significant challenge facing the state going forward is the same, which is how do you actually fund schools, whether they're district schools or charter schools that are both public. What I think you've seen in this debate is when resources get scarce, folks start fighting over the crumbs off the side of the table as opposed to solving how you fix the biggest problem there, which is funding resources. Uh, so, I, of course, you know, I believe there are things that um, I'll take a stand on and I'm willing to disagree with folks in my own party and disagree with folks on the other side of the aisle. That's and why. And I, education, where is that? Is that particularly in the investment in charter schools and innovation schools, do you think? Uh, I think that what I think that there obviously we want to have choice for parents. I think parents have made clear they like to be able to choose different sides of school, different types of schools that are public. Uh, I oppose privatization. I oppose vouchers. I was the first to oppose Betsy DeVos's nomination as secretary. So I think there's a real wrong road to go down there. But I do think there are parents in Colorado who want public 
public school choice as long as you hold charters to the same set of standards. I've also been the one to fight to say that charters ought to make sure they serve all kids and ought to keep their doors open to all kids. I ran a special ed facility. I ran a district center program for students with special needs. So I think that all public schools should keep their doors open to all students, but schools that do that uh, should get funding and should get support. On Thursday and Friday, teachers across the state plan to walk out to protest low pay and what they say is often out-of-pocket expenses for work. They're buying supplies for their classrooms. Are they right to walk out? Would you walk out with them if you were still an educator? They are right. And not only would I walk out with them as an educator, I will be there with them as a candidate. So I'll be joining this week because I think what you find is, yes, when you ask what the impacts of Tabor are, one of the impacts of Tabor are we now have some of the lowest teacher salaries in the country here in Colorado. You go to a place like Montezuma County where I was recently, you know, starting salary there for a teacher is $29,000 a year. That's barely above minimum wage. And so you have folks who will say, I was going to teach, but I decided to just wait tables instead because I can make more money there. You can't find the best talent we need for the most important jobs in the state at that kind of compensation. So I do think that the long-term weight of Tabor and others is starting to bear down in our schools, and they've been doing more with less for too long. You blame Tabor for a lack of education funding, and yet Tabor says, listen, if you want to raise taxes, go to the voters and ask them. You did that in 2013. You failed. Isn't that your failure, not Tabor's? Uh, No, I think we did exactly what Tabor asked us to do, which is to say, if you want more resources, go to the voters and ask for it. We uh, we followed it and took and made that request. The voters did not want to do a tax increase at that stage. Uh, That was the hole in the school funding, which was about a billion dollars. So that's what we asked for. They said no. So what I did is listen to their feedback and came back to the legislature the next year and found a way to pass with bipartisan support one of the largest increases in school funding uh, we've seen in the last thirty years. And so. Uh, I think we can always find a way to work within the constraints. But if folks want to know what would it take for us to have, say, teacher compensation that's on par with at least the average states in the country rather than being at the bottom, you would need to have the ability to make more investments. We have talked uh, briefly about workforce training. Mm -hmm. And one of the programs you're touting is called the Colorado Promise. In essence, it's a kind of educational national guard. Um, Coloradans of all ages, not just young people, would be able to go to school for two years and learn new skills debt-free. And in return, they'd volunteer for Colorado in some respect, giving back. Uh, Who do you think is in need of that kind of program? Uh, I think if you look at coal miners on the western slope, or you look at truck drivers, or you look at bank tellers, all of these industries that stand to be automated or changed or eliminated even potentially, we know we're going to have many, many Coloradans who are going to be in transition. Uh, And we know that the new jobs they're going to want to seek are going to require new skills. So I think we need a new vision for public education, which is not the old one where at age 18, you get a degree and that's an inoculation shot that keeps you employed for 50 years. That's not the new world. The new world is you got to change jobs eight to 10 times over your career and those need new skills. So we want a way for everyone to be able to get access to those skills at any stage of their career when they're making those changes. You would use online sales tax to pay for the bulk of that, uh, a tax that the state is not yet currently fully collecting. Okay, transportation. According to CDOT, there's a $9 billion shortfall for transportation needs. Republican lawmakers say the money's already there. The state just has to make it a priority. But uh, if some sort of measure were to get on the ballot, perhaps alongside your name... 
uh, asking for a tax hike for transportation. Would you support it? I am likely to support it. There are a number of measures being considered right now, so I'd want to see what the final one is. But, you know, and these are all led by the business community and the chambers of commerce who are just saying for our own economic needs, we have to be able to make this change. I chaired the finance committee for four years in the Senate, so I can tell you there are not $9 billion in the couch cushions of the state budget to fund roads and bridges long term. And that's just the first nine years of needs. Another $11 billion for the next 11 years after that. Every Democratic candidate in this race is talking about how to make sure that all Coloradans have health insurance. Uh, but th- these candidates, including yourself, differ on how to get there. Uh, so Representative Jared Polis among the Democrats wants a single-payer system. Former State Treasurer Kerry Kennedy talks about a public option for anyone through Medicaid, or as both she and Donna Lynn suggest through the plans offered to state employees. Your proposal's more tailored than that. People uh, who have to spend more than 10% of their income on a plan could buy into a Medicaid public option. Why that more targeted approach? Because what we want to do is we want to provide choice in all the parts of the state where people don't have choice, which is what's driving up prices. What you don't want to do is destabilize the markets that are working effectively. And so what we've offered is, is a public option to buy into Medicaid in any places where the plans are currently unaffordable, which is do like the Do you think a statewide slope. plan would be destabilizing? I, I do think it would be. Okay. What you would see is a lot of private health care providers would probably leave the state. We'd have less choice. We'd have higher prices. You back a number of initiatives when it comes to energy, espousing what you call a clean energy economy that would achieve 100 percent renewable energy in the state by 2040. But on your campaign website, you barely touch on oil and gas, which is a huge part of the economy here. Uh, Also a source of a lot of tension in Colorado. As governor, is there anything you'd change about how oil and gas is regulated by state or local governments? I think there's quite a bit of work to do. And actually, we just released a new part of our plan this week, so you may just see it. Uh, But yes, we've come out and said a couple things. One is long term, we obviously have to move the state to 100% renewable energy. So that's our big goal. But in the short term, we have to do far more to protect public health and safety. So I've said, yes, I think you have to push back setbacks uh, statewide. I think you should not allow folks to drill in places that are environmentally sensitive, like the Thompson Divide or the sand dunes. So further setbacks. Yes, I think they've already been moved. Yep, I think they need to be. Those need to be pushed back. They need to be pushed back statewide. As one, I think you don't want where neighborhood by neighborhood, county by county, are separately negotiating against oil and gas companies to see who gets the lowest setback. I think there ought to be one statewide setback. And what Uh, do you say to the people whose property is is underground and taken by that? who don't have access, perhaps, to their minerals as a result. I don't believe that you can ban people's access to those minerals. I still believe they have access to recover them. But right now we know, and I've visited with these companies, right now you know, they're, they're running two-mile horizontal drills underground to be able to get to minerals. So a 500 or 1,000-foot setback is not going to make it impossible to get to those minerals. It just means you have to keep away from schools and homes. Did you want to get to perhaps one other proposal for oil and gas? Yeah, I think the other one is we all clearly have to uh, cap the more than 1,000 orphan wells around the state, which are the kind of leaking wells that caused the home explosion in Firestone where I spent some time with families. So that ought to be the responsibility to get those all capped and plugged. And then we ought to make sure we get to zero leakage among all those pipelines. We don't have more and more families worried that if they go into the basement to fix a pilot light, they might have their home explode. Briefly to guns, you would ban bump stocks, create gun violence restraining orders. Uh, But at least one candidate in this race has called for a ban on assault style weapons like the AR-15. You have not. Why not? 
I have actually. I was the first one to come out and call for a ban on it. We had the discussion in the debate, and I've said, yes, of course, I would ban assault weapons. But I think the more important thing to watch is the size of the magazine. Because if you look at just two high-profile shootings in Colorado, of course, the Aurora Theater shooting, 100-round magazine on an AR-15. But if you just ban the AR-15 by itself, you still have the Columbine shooting, where you had a shooter who walked in to a high school with a handgun with a 52-round magazine in it. And if you have handguns that still carry 52-round magazines, that is the real thing to watch. So I was proud to sponsor the ban on high-capacity magazines. Every Republican candidate said they would repeal it. It's most important to protect that ban on high-capacity magazines, saves the most lives. But also, yes, I would sign an assault weapons ban if we could get that done. All right. I want to go back to something you said at that House gathering in Denver. Uh, You were discussing how your campaign is financed. You know, we have also raised more money than any gubernatorial campaign in Colorado history at this stage, Republican or Democrat. And the only campaign that's done it without a single dollar of PAC money, without a single dollar of special interest funding, or without self-financing. Let's focus on your statement that you haven't taken a single dollar of PAC money. In March, Colorado Politics reported that former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, a co-founder of Everytown for Gun Safety, made a million-dollar donation to a super PAC which supports you. Is it disingenuous to say you're not getting PAC support, even if it's indirect? Uh, no, it's not. We All I'm responsible for is the dollars I bring into our campaign. But even so, it's about accepting donations from individuals, from human beings with names. PACs are corporate entities where you don't know who gave the money or what they gave it for or what their special interest is. My commitment has always been we'll take monies from individuals. But no, the, the outside entities that support us, they make those decisions. I don't do that. But I'm proud of the fact that Michael Bloomberg looked around the country and said, who, where is there an elected official who has the courage to actually take on the NRA and get big things done? And they said, that I was the one with the biggest track record of being able to do that. So honored to have his support. But what I'm responsible for is the money I raise into our campaign. And we've taken them only from individuals. I'm the only candidate to do that. Besides the money from Bloomberg, there's another contribution. This one, $250,000 that's come from Reed Hoffman, the California entrepreneur who founded LinkedIn. Uh, as we pointed out, neither man lives in Colorado. What influence might they have in your administration? Oh, I think there's no uh, influence they'll have in my administration. I think what they're looking you, out for... You just for... said that you were happy to have Bloomberg supporting you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he'll have no influence? So what I think those people support is they're looking for leaders with track records of accomplishment, and they want to support those people that have the courage to take on hard fights and win. I think they don't find a lot of political courage when you look around the country, and I'm the only candidate in this race who's taken on the NRA twice and won twice. And when the NRA came to threaten me that my political career would be over if I had the courage to take those stands, I didn't say, oh, I'm worried about that. I said, that's not my concern. My concern is not going to more funerals for 14-year-olds. So I think people are looking for, in this moment around the country, where are their leaders with political courage who will take real stands on things that matter. And I think that's in, a, in an era when more and more leadership is going to be taken by governors because the federal government is less and less successful. You're going to look to governors to make changes on the environment, on women's health, on gun safety, on education. All of the major innovations in this moment are going to come from the state. So I think where folks used to look at U.S. senators as a national investment, I think folks now are looking for governors to lead the country. You are in a strong position financially, but polling shows that you're behind both Jared Polis and Kerry Kennedy. About 10 weeks left before the primary. Why why do you think you haven't connected? 
Oh, I think we've connected profoundly. What that's a recognition of is name ID at this stage in the race. There are about 65% of the voters who've yet to make up their mind. That's where this entire race is decided. So a 10-point difference with 65% undecided uh, is a very small number for us. And as we, you and I were talking about earlier, the rest of the state is just now starting to pay attention to this race. I think when they start to look closely at who is the candidate that has the real track record of being able to take on incredibly difficult problems and build broad enough coalitions to actually succeed at them, whether it was passing the Dream Act for undocumented kids or criminal justice reform or energy or health care. I've led successfully on all of those progressive issues in a big way, and I think there's no one else that will have that track record. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Democrat Mike Johnston wants to be Colorado's next governor. In our next episode, Republican Vic Mitchell. He paints himself as a political outsider, but has served in the state legislature. Listen to all the major party candidates for governor right here on Who's Gonna Govern, a podcast from CPR News. Our music is composed by Scott Holmes. Thanks to producers Anthony Cotton and Michelle P. Fulcher. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. CPR News.